This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. In our next story, well, it's a whopper. On this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Over the next hour, we are going to tell you the story of one man whose vision and determination revolutionized the world. Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. He didn't even invent the assembly line. But more than any other single individual, he was responsible for transforming the automobile from an invention of unknown utility and expensive curiosity into an innovation that profoundly shaped the 20th century and continues to affect our lives today. You all know his name. You're about to know his story. Here's Greg Hengler. He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters, public enemy number one, John Dillinger, and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Here's historians David Kennedy, Nancy Cohen, and Douglas Brinkley. Well, Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility, knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. Johnny O'Connor owned an automobile. He took his sweetheart for a ride last Sunday. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, He put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. But less well-known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best for the rest of us. This is the story of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. America is becoming the most powerful nation on Earth, transformed by a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car, 
one specifically built for popular use. It weighs a thousand pounds, has a four-cylinder engine, and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $825, compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable to the common man. But in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. In the guise of protecting the public from unreliable upstarts, 11 car manufacturers form Alum in 1903. Alum owns the patent on the automobile, giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future auto industry. These social planners are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly who partner with the government, all in the name of doing what is best for us. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum, allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. Here's historian H.W. Brands. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian. So that it was within the reach of ordinary people. Ford spends years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America. But he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Here's Henry Ford biographer Stephen Watts. Alum was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies, saying, you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Alum board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he's broke and appears to be all washed up. Ford needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Henry Ford's story, and it's true, he changed how we all lived. And it's remarkable to note that up until Ford was doing what he was doing and thinking like he was thinking, people who owned cars didn't drive them. So clearly it was for the rich who had butlers, help, valets, whatever. And what Ford was trying to do was to, well, bring it to the ordinary person by bringing the price down and also by letting that person, well, drive the cars themselves. And on this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. When we return, we continue with the life of Henry Ford.
And we continue with our American stories. And on this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. And when we last left off, Ford was facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles. In his early 40s, broke, beaten down by a cartel. What could possibly be next? Let's take a listen. It's July 30th, 1863. The Civil War is still raging, and it's 30 years before the first automobile appears in the U.S. Farmers William and Mary Ford have their first surviving child in Dearborn, Michigan. They name him Henry. His childhood is spent on a farm among prairies, deep blue lakes, and tall green trees. Horses and horse-drawn carriages are the main form of transportation, and hard work is the only way to get things done. Henry's parents expect all their six children to work alongside them on the land. But Henry finds the work tedious, and when he begins obsessing over machines that might make farm life easier, his parents indulge their naturally curious child. They allow him to neglect his chores and set up a workbench for him in the kitchen. Henry's father once said, He's not much of a farmer. He's a tinkerer. Here's automotive historian Robert Casey. Henry Ford was a natural-born mechanic. He had innate ability. One of the first places that he was able to begin to hone that ability was when he received a watch for his 13th birthday. Like a lot of little boys who wanted to know about machines, he took that watch apart. Unlike most little boys, he was able to put the watch back together again. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, when his siblings received wind-up toys for Christmas, they had to hide them from Henry or he would take them apart to see their inner workings. In 1876, Henry's 12-year-old world falls apart. His beloved mother, Mary, dies during childbirth along with the newborn baby. But that very month, young Henry sees something that will change his life forever. While traveling down the road with his father in their horse-drawn wagon, Henry gets his first close-up view of a billowing steam-powered road roller, also known as a steamroller, a bulky vehicle that chugged along country roads and performed farm chores for hire. Henry scrambles off the wagon and chases down the owner of this machine. Here's that moment portrayed in the 1987 film Ford. The man and the machine. Oh, what's that? Looks like a stove on wheels. He ain't got no horses. It's that engine making the wagon go. Hey, you come back here. Listen to your father. I've never seen a wagon move not pulled by horses. Steam power, boy. How's it work? How fast can it go? For Henry Ford, this encounter was his road to Damascus, a glimpse of the full potential of the Industrial Revolution and free market capitalism. Not merely brute factory power, but mobility, the capacity of a machine to venture deep into the countryside off the beaten track, far from the railroad, and enhance the lives of farmers who had previously felt cut off from the outside world. Formal education didn't much interest Henry. He quit school after the fifth grade. 
And like his future friend Thomas Edison and countless other youngsters across the nation, he finds satisfaction by working with his hands on a complicated task. At some point after seeing the road roller, Ford begins dreaming of building his own mobile contraption. On a cold day in December 1879, Henry walks the nine miles from his family farm to the city of Detroit to become a machine shop apprentice. It is here where he will reinvent himself. In 1885, while attending a dance, Henry Ford meets Clara Bryant. Henry impresses Clara with a watch he made. She likes that he is a serious person and willing to work hard. Then, on a spring day in 1888, wearing a wedding dress that she's made herself, Clara marries Henry Ford. Ford nicknames his wife the Believer because she never doubts his skill as an inventor. He says, It was a very great thing to have my wife even more confident than I was. Three years later, Henry Ford takes a job at the Edison Illuminating Company, working his way up to chief engineer by the age of 31. It's here where Henry Ford and the owner of the company, the man who invents the light bulb, Thomas Edison, become good friends. During his free time, with his canny source of rugged engineering, Ford will stay in his dimly lit shed behind the house long into the night and often through the morning, secretly tinkering with machinery and doing experiments on his gasoline-powered engine. His curious neighbors ask his wife what he's doing all night long. Her response is simple. Henry is making something. Maybe someday I'll tell you about it. As the years pass, however, he begins to spend less time worrying about providing electricity to the citizens of Detroit and more on what has become his after-hours obsession. Here's technology historian John Staudenmeyer. Transportation in America was terrible once you got away from the railroads. Terrible. It was an enormous burden. I mean, if you're living on the farm, getting around on land is one of the biggest problems people have. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, German engineers Nicholas Otto and Eugene Langen have already invented the internal combustion engine that runs on gasoline. In 1886, their countrymen Gottlieb Daimler and Karl Benz are crossing European roads in their first automobile. But Ford is undisturbed by all this. He wants to build an automobile that is superior to all of theirs. In 1893, Ford sets out to build the gasoline-powered vehicle that has been taking shape in his mind. Here's Ford biographer Robert Lacey. Henry Ford had an enormous capacity for concentration. He became something of a mad professor when he was actually working on a project. And so when he was building his first internal combustion engine, his own version of it, he got so wrapped up that he brought it home on Christmas Eve when his poor wife was cooking the turkey and getting the meal ready and everything. And right in the middle of all this, he stuck the machine on the kitchen sink, uh, screwed it to the sink, got his wife, whose, whose hands were all covered with gravy and stuff, to actually drip gasoline into the top of it. He connected the wires and started the machine and was quite oblivious to the fact that he was filling the kitchen with clouds of exhausted smoke. Henry Ford is determined to show the world that to succeed in America, all you need is integrity and ingenuity. Ford knows that he cannot be free to succeed 
as long as Alum clouds the destiny as marked out for himself. Ford is left with few options, but he isn't about to give up on his dreams. Here again is Ford biographer Stephen Watts. Ford thought that uh, the whole thing was ridiculous, uh, that there could not be a patent on the idea of the automobile, that the automobile was not the property of one single individual. Ford is determined to get around Allen's stranglehold on the auto industry, but he's just one man going up against a virtual monopoly. If he's going to be a success without Allen, he's going to need to make a name for himself. Ford writes, the public thinks nothing of a car unless it makes speed, unless it beats other racing cars. Henry Ford challenges the owner of the biggest car company in the country to a race. And talk about audacity, and what a story, folks. A childhood on the farm, all he saw was horses and horse-drawn carriages, works with his hands, he's a tinkerer, totally self-taught, and right around the same time that he loses his mom, well, he also gets his first look at that old steamroller, and, well, that was his road to Damascus. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how Henry Ford, well, how he changed the world, challenged the monopoly power of a group that was essentially trying to block competition and protect their own way of doing business under the pretext of a patent that even Henry Ford thought was just absurd. How to keep a patent on something as broad as an automobile. By the way, there have been stories right up to the present day of the abuse of patents. And we've covered a few of them here. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Ford. Again, quit school after the fifth grade. And my goodness, working for Thomas Edison at the Edison Illuminating Company in Detroit. More on the life of Henry Ford when we continue here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with our American stories. We're telling the story of Henry Ford because on this day in history in 1863, he was born. And again, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter and that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. I would heartily recommend their Constitution 101 course. I learned more from it than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. It's that good. We now pick up with the story of Henry Ford and his ongoing battle with the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. Alexander Winton is known as the fastest driver in America and is also a prominent member of Alum. Beating Winton with a car of his own design has the potential to give Ford the boost he needs 
to start his own company. There's just one problem. Henry Ford has never raced a car before. Here again is Stephen Watts. It's a David and Goliath scene. Winton's famous world record holder has this fancy race car. Ford, the local boy, made good. For the first third of the 10-mile race, Ford legs behind Winton, struggling to control his car and the curves because he doesn't have any brakes. Then on the sixth lap, he starts to close the gap. As Winton's engine begins to overheat and smoke, the crowd erupts as Ford zooms past his rival, winning the race by nearly a mile. Henry Ford's upset win over the fastest man in America makes him instantly famous. Ford's a hero, and this is really the first big time, I think, that he becomes a celebrity. Uh, the Ford name gets out there, and he milks it for everything that it's worth. And it was a very crucial part of Ford getting investors for the Ford Motor Company. But Ford's success is met with almost instant defeat. William Murphy, his key financial backer, fires Ford and starts another car company named after the founder of Fort Detroit, the French explorer Antoine de Cadillac. Ford leaves with his name, $900, and a dream. Henry Ford raises $28,000, or $700,000 today. On June 16, 1903, Ford has enough money to incorporate the Ford Motor Company and before long, he's producing 15 cars a day, priced low enough for almost any American. But Ford's investors propose an alternative way to increase profits, by increasing the price tag of his automobile. Here again is Ford biographer Robert Lacey. From the beginning, there seemed to have been two strands in American car making. There were the people who were making horseless carriages for the rich, loading them down, making them heavy and luxurious. And then there was Henry Ford, who had this idea that a car should be able to go along the rutted tracks. It should be able to drive across a plowed field. A farmer should be able to use it and take a wheel off it and fix a chain to it and, and cut some trees down or husk some corn. That was all he was interested in from the start. Henry Ford's early success puts him on the map. Alum takes notice and hits him with a lawsuit claiming he's breaching their patent on the automobile. It's a blatant attempt to police him out of the business, but Ford's dream to make the car a necessity rather than a luxury will not be crushed. Here's Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. You see all these huge conglomerations suing people over patents. The big guys are taking advantage of the little guys, trying to find whatever angle they could and using their might, and those with the best tricksters win. Ford is convinced the era of unchecked monopolies is over. So, as his lawsuit winds its way through the court, he openly defies the order from Alum and continues building and selling his cars. Henry Ford believes there's a better way to conduct business in America, and he's determined to make it a reality. Ford's unprecedented and groundbreaking $5 a day raise is more than double the rate of most U.S. factories. He also cuts hours from 10 per day to eight. But Ford isn't just paying his workers better, he's also getting more out of them. He innovates a new system for producing cars. Rather than handcrafting each car one at a time at stationary workbenches, 
His are assembled by a line of workers, piece by piece. It's called the moving assembly line, and it completely changes manufacturing forever. Here again is historian H.W. Brands. Ford didn't invent mass production, but he perfected mass production. He understood that a complicated product like an automobile could be simplified and could be made less expensive if the same thing was produced again and again and again. Using the assembly line, Ford's workers can build cars up to eight times faster than any other automobile factory in the world. What once took 12 and a half man hours to assemble now takes 93 minutes. The innovation allows Ford to standardize the eight hour workday, five days a week. Meanwhile, Ford awaits the future of his company. It's potentially a life-changing moment, not just for Ford, but for the future of every industry in America. In a surprise decision, the court rules in favor of Henry Ford. Alum has no legal claim to the design of the car. Ford's battle against Alum in the state lasted from 1903 until 1911. At some point early in the fight, Ford could have negotiated a peace treaty with Alum, but that would have violated his principles. Ford was once asked, what's your greatest ambition? To be free, a free man, he shot back. Ford knew that he could not be free so long as the alum patent clouded the destiny he had marked out for himself. Ford's destiny is made a reality, and the car belongs to everyone. Ford's success put him forward in American life as a new kind of businessman. But in crucial ways, unlike Rockefeller or Carnegie, he wasn't trying to gain a monopoly. He was trying to bring a product to the people. The American population ate this up, and they made Henry Ford a kind of folk hero. Ford seizes the momentum, and his factories go into overdrive. Every few months, Ford introduces a new model, making his way through the alphabet. But the Model K is too heavy and expensive. The Model N, though lighter and cheaper, has an engine cast in four pieces rather than one block. Ford keeps at it and hits the jackpot with the Model T. Here again is John Stoudemire. I think it was the same kind of excitement that the Man on the Moon mission people had. There are a handful of those kinds of moments in American history where there's a dream that is so big in its potential, and you think you got it, and then you get it. Ford's assembly line starts producing this revolutionary new car at a record rate. The Model T costs only $825. It's a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower, five-passenger family car. Powerful, speedy, and enduring. A car that looks good and is as good as it looks. The response is immediate and overwhelming. Orders pour in from doctors and farmers. Americans who have never dreamed of becoming motorists can now afford Henry Ford's Model T. And what a story, and my goodness, some breaking points, some turning points in his life. 
winning that race, and of course starting the company that had one, well, failed launch. And Mark Cuban, well, he put it right. Those big guys at Allen were trying to take advantage of this little guy and using law, patent law, and every other legal trick. And luckily for Ford, after an eight-year struggle in the courts, the courts, well, they let Ford be a free man, and he was free to compete. And this ushered in the Model T and modern transportation as we know it and the automobile. When we come back, this remarkable life story, Henry Ford's story, continues here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with the life of Henry Ford. And my goodness, storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks, about an American icon. So much of this I didn't know myself. On this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to Hillsdale. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here's historians Greg Grandin and Hasia Diner. The Model T changed everything. It gave people a new sense of power and authority and control over their lives. You can go wherever you wanted and you can go by yourself. You can get in your car and you have access now to towns to cities, to places that were beyond your reach just a few years earlier. They are also remarkably durable. Here's historian Douglas Brinkley. They didn't break down a lot compared to other vehicles, and when they did, they were very simple to repair. This wasn't somebody just genie out a product. This was a quality to the economical car that the world had never even imagined could be possible. Part of the enduring myth of the Model T is that all of them were black. But when the Model T first came on the market, customers could get almost any color except black. Blue, gray, green, and red were all available. It was not until five years later that the any color so long as it's black policy was finally implemented. Then in 1913, Ford enacted another amazing advancement with the implementation of standardized interchangeable parts. Unlike other cars at the time, every Model T produced on the line used the exact same valves, gas tanks, tires, etc so that they could be assembled in a speedy and organized fashion. 1,000 cars a day roll out of the factory in 1914, 2,000 in 1916, and as productivity goes up, the price goes down. Soon, 60% of all cars made in the U.S. are Model Ts. And by 1927, Ford has rolled 15 million through his assembly lines. 
All the success didn't concern Ford much. Workers report seeing him take a crumpled up piece of paper out of his pocket, only to discover that it is a check for $68,000. Henry stuffed it in there and then forgot all about it. To Ford, making money didn't make a person successful. As he later wrote, to do for the world more than the world does for you, that is success. One small yet very significant and relatively unknown success for Ford was his popularization of an incendiary little brick that helps fire up our grills. One of the primary raw materials Ford used to build his Model T's was wood. So, he sent a friend to look for forest land to purchase in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. To find out how using wood to build Model T's led to a building block of the backyard barbecue, let's hear from Matt Anderson, the curator of transportation of the Henry Ford. Ford was building Model T's by the hundreds of thousands every year, and he was starting to think about vertical integration, not just owning the factories that built the cars, but all of the raw materials that went into them. Looking for forest land up there, he hired a fellow by the name of Edward Kingsford. He was a Ford dealer, he had some experience with real estate, and not incidentally, he was married to Henry Ford's first cousin. So he goes around and finds over 300,000 acres that Henry Ford purchases, and then Ford builds a sawmill right there on the site to build the bodies and then send them down to the plant in Dearborn. Henry Ford's lumber mill was producing hundreds of thousands of board feet of lumber each day, so there was a lot of wood waste coming out of that. And Ford thought, rather than throw away all this waste, what if we could turn it into a commercial product? And that's where the charcoal briquette idea came from. It's been said that Ford had some outside help in developing the exact chemistry behind his charcoal briquettes and the makeup of the plant. In fact, it's been said that Thomas Edison assisted to some extent in that. And whether it's true or not, it is for sure that Edison came up and visited Ford's Upper Peninsula land holdings in 1923. As long as Henry was alive and Ford Motor Company was producing it, it was sold under the Ford brand name, just like the cars. After Henry Ford dies in 1947, the company slowly begins to move away from this vertical integration idea. They sell off their businesses in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, including the charcoal business, which then another company buys, and they rename the product Kingsford, after the town where Ford had founded up there, which was named for Edward Kingsford. By 1963, barbecues like cars were icons of American leisure. As an article in Reader's Digest observed, cooking with charcoal is now as deeply ingrained in American life as the long weekend in the servantless kitchen. At the end of 1927, Ford introduces the newly improved Model A. This new design is revolutionary. It's a 65 mile per hour beauty it incorporates things like headlights, a windshield, and even a turnkey ignition. He also introduces a new way of buying a car, financing, a method that is still the most common way of buying a car to this very day. Cutting prices enable Ford to achieve what are his two aims in life, to bring the pleasures of the automobile to as many people as possible and to provide a large number of high-paying jobs for his workers. Here's business historian Murray Klein. Henry Ford created what became the most important industry in the American economy. He had no idea of the enormous impact it would have on almost every sector of American life. He literally changed America, the way we live, 
the way we do things, and the way we go about our business. Ford's reputation won't always be so positive, but his revolution inspires an entire generation of visionaries who will transform the fabric of American life. Childhood friends William Harley and Arthur Davidson attach an engine to a bicycle and begin selling motorcycles to the masses. Milton Hershey applies Henry Ford's assembly line model to the mass production of chocolate. Chicago merchant William Wrigley takes his chewing gum national, and in Hollywood, Polish immigrant Max Factor begins distributing cosmetics for movie stars to drugstores across the country, inventing a completely new consumer product, makeup. In the spring of 1947, Henry Ford returns home from vacation. On his second day back, heavy rain causes the Rouge River to overflow, knocking out power to the Fairlane power plant and to Henry Ford's estate. That evening, Henry and his wife turn in early, power still out in their room lit only by an oil lamp and a few candles. Before the night is out, Henry Ford, the father of mass production, the inventor of the modern age, the man who embodied the American dream, lays his head on his wife's shoulder and leaves the world just as he came into it 84 years earlier, by candlelight. In Detroit, Motorists are asked to come to a complete stop at the time the automaker's body is being lowered into the ground. At the second, when the automobiles come to a stop, Detroit returns to the way Henry Ford had found it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work, as always, by Greg Hengler, and thanks to all who contributed to this piece, all the historians, the Ford Museum, and what a life story, folks. And it doesn't get more quintessentially American than Henry Ford's story. Starts out at the family farm, not really interested in school, starts to tinker, challenges the world's greatest auto racer to a race, and he's never raced a car before, and he wins. Starts a company, it gets stolen from him, he starts it again, And he challenges a cartel and wins in court. And by the way, he does some remarkable things as a businessman. He raises wages, he cuts hours, and he brings down the cost of a car and creates a car that everyone in America can use, taking it from the purview of the rich to the ordinary and the day-to-day and giving people tremendous freedom to roam, to visit, to travel, and to live as they please. And by the way... On a secondary note, it's well chronicled that Ford had some anti-Semitic problems and problems with anti-Semitism, as did much of America. But in the end, Ford's great work on perfecting production and the means of production helped power the arsenal of democracy, which allowed America to defeat the Nazi war machine. Henry Ford's story, a terrific Michigan story, a great American story, here on Our American Stories. 
For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. AmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything, and periodically, we tell stories about sports, but as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. And we're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man and stories about this man. If you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out, don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina, he was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year. Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham. To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy, uh, the coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing. Alumni, students, 
wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel of January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote. Yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for, a smaller, for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> and those were tough years for Coach. And Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years. You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one. How could you be a cocky, wise guy coaching teams that were 8-9, and 12-12, and 12, you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do, really didn't do very much of anything. So humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players in his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to do with Coach Smith. They were, all they wanted to do was get someone new in. You know, coaching and recruiting, which it come down to, and you saw that there, is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching in the proper way and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us. And then that's when things started, and obviously he went on to become, if not the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him, and all the kids. The place was just packed. And we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse Sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention. As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith. And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd, why me? Why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week he and asked, said that he and the family wanted me to speak, I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> For you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. <laughs> Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jameson, Phil Ford, Eric Montross. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave equal equal treatment to every player, from a walk-on to a superstar. Yes, said, yes, Roy said, all the speakers achieve great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments. But everyone thought it'd be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum 
to make a presentation. So I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying you want a player to speak that had limited talent, limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said yes. And I said, well, I'm your man. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams, you're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not-so-great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach. Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I'll take that back. When I was a senior... I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of Phil Ford? (laughs) And I remember his answer. He just said, no. (laughs) Like you over last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They've made me smile. They've made me reflect. And yes, that made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person. How do I explain to someone that life, his life was guided by principles and he never ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man? Someone who challenged us every day, to get better on the court and off the court. He coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now, he could get mad, Uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. When we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. The glass to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class. He never talked about winning. 
only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humbled winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. <laughs> How about explaining to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him. They're all nodding their heads because we knew that on time the Coach Smith meant five minutes early. And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. <laughs> we got them right where we want them. <laughs> Isn't this fun? Because you see, we had prepared or practiced so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other, sc other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. When my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The four corners, secondary break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. One of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because to Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this uh, praise on him. He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us 
should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill. And that point to a pastor was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words. For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say, thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought me, was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited t talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, coach, thank you. And in closing, if your friends, if your friends come up to you, if your children, or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you. And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina, and he started things off with a funny story. It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, J.R. was playing. And we'd come down court. We'd change sides of the court with the ball like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into J.R. J.R. would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face, and it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court, and I said, I'm going to coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, coach, you think we ought to call a timeout? He looks at me with a straight face and says, what are we going to tell them? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth, it's, it's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program, and that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith. And you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players, and of course, Coach Roy Williams. What a speech he gives. It's worth the wait. And all of this happened at the Dean Dome, as it's affectionately called, on the bucolic, beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina, where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades. Phil Ford, by the way, before we go to another clip and his talk, He said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech. And he starts to get emotional right about here. Because of my Christian belief, I I do believe that Coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and and his office with Brent and Miss Woods, and they would make him smile and you know, I, I still want to have lunch with him, and I still want to push him out to his van, but uh, I do know one day that I'll see him, and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need no, look no further than Coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been, to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball, the greatest coach. I'm going to miss you, Coach. And next up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montross. And these are the words that came to his mind about Coach. Humility. Conviction, dedication, compassion, loyalty, bravery, and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium, and one of my teammates ran out of the gym into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith and he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith, so he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch 
of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here. And we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome. And it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 national champions. The famed poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon. And so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts, but was shy to receive this attention because to him, it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us that we be in a place of worship once a week. He encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Jr. said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. 
Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face to face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example, giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life. You're not going to hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men, the legend, the coach, the man, Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life. And we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour. They're startling. And what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk. 30, 40 years after playing for them, it's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this, Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now, the man who played as a JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Guthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. I said, Coach, how you doing? Right. 
we're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him coach, and he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't, and I never have. No, sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young player, and it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking him to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time. And Coach says, well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. <laughs> and that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, with Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first. The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day, I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. <laughs> I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? True story. So when the player and myself, when we were finished and the player left, I walked out and I said, was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell? You know. <laughs> and she said, no, the Secret Service called first. And I said, we'll see if you can get him on the line. And so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game. Swear to goodness. So two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, the conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove 
at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Coach Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean really mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar. I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back, and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so a guy means go boy or girly the one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did. And here's Roy Williams closing things out. We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. Trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point and thank him for the assist. Thank you. And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there. And this was last year, but we'll play this every year because great teaching is great teaching and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words. What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility and giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. 
But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us. And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend. It turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith. And Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s. And Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no. African-Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And he goes, then with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then, not too long after that club desegregated. His word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. Always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life, celebrated at the Dean Dome, we'll do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.